everybody. I'm Sarah Stone and welcome to this week's episode of the Tennis Connection podcast. This week, we have the great pleasure in interviewing Dr. Mark Kovacs. You might not know this about us, but Dr. Mark Kovacs and I went to high school together back in Australia, and we also used to practice together in the same squad. Dr. Mark Kovacs is one of the leading experts in tennis. We're so pleased to have him back in New York again this year. He's going to be talking about forehands in the women's game. A very special welcome to Dr. Mark Kovacs. He has a very, very busy schedule and he made time for us this week. So we thank him so much for giving us the opportunity to talk tennis with him. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. No problem at all. I'm looking forward to it. What I, what I really love about what you do is that um, you've got so much science backing up everything you say. And uh, now, of course, I think perhaps I should have studied something a little bit different, but I did study environmental biology. So I have an appreciation for people that actually back everything up that they say. So, and there are so many people out there that think they know how to, hit, how to teach a good serve or hit a good serve. But when I've actually, I just watched one of your videos this morning, but when you look at the way you analyze everything, it just makes it, you go, well, here are the facts, here are the figures, um, which makes it you know, true. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, as much as possible, trying to just use the data to help people make better decisions. Because uh, as you know, in all coaching, I work across a lot of sports and it's the same in baseball and basketball and football. There's a lot of historical coaching or opinion-based coaching that has gone on. Um, this is how I was coached or this is who I learned from. And, you know, it's a lot of it's good. A lot of it's trial and error and it works and it's worth continuing. But you still want to understand why. Why does it work if it does work? And then a lot of the time, sometimes it doesn't work and you've just been doing it and it's inefficient, ineffective, and there's just better ways to do it. So during all of this time of researching the data, what would you think is the absolute biggest revelation that you've found um, that has contradicted the previous methods of coaching? I mean, in, in the tennis world specifically, I think the biggest differences has been, it used to, a lot of the way things were coached was from contact back. So you'd make contact with the ball and you'd work backwards from there and you'd make all your adjustments, technical changes, things like that, uh, from that point backwards. Uh, and as we know now, um, you know, we've got to understand the body and the kinetic chain and the sequencing of energy and the summation of forces and all these concepts. And that actually starts at the beginning of your first movement, not at contact. So trying to make adjustments based on contact is really a backwards approach to fixing problems or making people hit the ball better, more efficient, things like that. So that's probably the biggest um, change in how things have been done since the past. Uh, it's really understanding physics better, understanding how to load the body efficiently to get an outcome that you want. And this applies to movement training. This applies to strength and conditioning as well and all the different things that go into making an athlete. So previously, people just looked at contact point and then worked backwards. That's, uh, so I didn't actually know that. That's interesting to me. Um, and yeah. when so did there, this there change was, occur? I mean, it, I mean, 
and again, I'm talking in, in generality and, you know, there was a lot of things being done in the seventies during the tennis boom. And there wasn't really high quality, high speed video. There wasn't really any research I would say being done at a high level on how to teach, uh, how to coach all of that. And there was a few exceptional coaches that were really leading, um, the entire industry because there wasn't the internet, there wasn't the ability to communicate very easily. You had to go to these coaching schools, coaching courses. Um, so everyone was really teaching it the same way to a, to a lot of the degree because there was only a handful of sources. Um, so probably in the mid to late 80s, you started seeing research really attacking this from a biomechanics standpoint and the physics standpoint. There's a few folks that really got this started. Jack Ruffle was one at University of Illinois, he was one of the first real tennis coach researchers that was out there, and he did some great, phenomenal work. Howard Brody was a physics professor at University of Pennsylvania, and he really was the leading um, the, the physics of tennis, and he really changed the way a lot of people looked at um, how to generate force, how to create spin what the geometry of the core was and the impact that that had on how you make decisions. So those were really two big players um, in the early days. Then Bruce Elliott in Australia came up a little bit later and did a lot of the biomechanics work uh, from that standpoint. And that really was 80s and early 90s. And that really changed a lot of how people taught and coached and things like that. And so as you've discovered more and more science that backs up reasoning behind coaching uh you've created your own sort of little tennis university to help educate coaches uh the yeah remind me the acronym yeah so the international tennis performance association um the itpa that was actually started by a group of folks nearly about eight years ago now and it was really seeing the industry and seeing that there was a big uh lack of sports science information, uh, specifically on fitness, uh, training, treatment, recovery, all those sports science areas around how to work with tennis athletes. And it was designed to provide a educational portal for coaches, but especially for strength and conditioning professionals, athletic trainers, physical therapists, medical doctors, chiropractors, pretty much any healthcare provider that worked with tennis athletes and nearly all those individuals don't have a background as a tennis player. They're, they know anatomy really well. They know physiology, they know medicine. They know how to work with athletes or with individuals from a health and performance perspective, but they may have been football players growing up or baseball players or soccer players or volleyball athletes or golfers. And they just didn't know what the demands of tennis are, where the injuries occur, uh, how to train someone the right way, how to be safe yet productive. So the International Tennis Performance was uh, put together with a group of experts, physical therapists, medical doctors, strength coaches. Uh, and now we have members in over 45 countries uh, and helped over a thousand people get jobs in different areas of tennis from traveling on tour to working in academies, to working in college settings, to working at private clubs, to working in clinics from a physical therapy and athletic training standpoint. So it's been a real passion project for me. Uh, because it's been great. We've had 
the World Tennis Fitness Conference for many years where a lot of these folks get together and network and we really do have some of the brightest minds in the sport all helping each other and some great friendships have been made and it's been really nice to see the growth of some of these younger coaches who started about seven, eight years ago and now some of the top coaches and trainers and therapists in, in the game and that's been a real uh, blessing to actually see that growth and keep in touch with all these folks and just see their development. Yeah, it's definitely on my list of uh, courses to take. I haven't quite got there yet, but um, as I said, anything that's really got the science to back it up absolutely fascinates me. So I think that's a it's a much needed organization, that's for sure. Yeah, and we've tried really hard to keep the quality very high. We don't focus on a lot of broad areas. It's it's very specific. If you're looking for sports science information, fitness information, how to train tennis players, how to understand the why of it, how to put together programs the right way, uh, it's really uh, where, where to go and where to focus. So, again, it's the International Tennis Performance Association, and you know, we'd love to have more folks involved. Uh, especially if they're working with tennis athletes in any capacity. You've done you've done so many things. You've transitioned from a player to a coach to a physiologist to a business executive. Really, you've you've really conquered the world. And um, I, I'm I'm curious to know if throughout this journey you've found there to be any similarities through what can only assume would be a bunch of tough learning curves are there some things where fundamentally you think that was actually the same each time I went through this learning curve yeah no that's a great question and yeah no I've I've been pretty fortunate to have some opportunities come up uh, in different sectors and yeah, you know, I, I worked with PepsiCo and Gatorade for a few years, and it's a Fortune 50 company, and I was at a, a executive level there, and that was a real eye-opener for me, coming from being an athlete, being a researcher, a coach. You know, you worked with a lot of folks that were very passionate, very committed to helping, um, working with people mainly is what we did. And in that world, there was a lot of other drivers. There was financial drivers. There was corporate culture drivers. There was a lot of different stakeholders that I hadn't really experienced that much in the past. Um, And it was really great to see how those objectives change the way people look at tasks that I would have looked at previously very differently. Um, so that really did help a lot from an understanding of the bigger picture of the, the greater world out there and how a lot of different people look at projects based on their inherent biases or training or background. So like you said, there's a lot of similarities in coaching and in leading and in managing staff and things like that. But the objectives many times are very different. Uh, so that really was a very beneficial experience. But from the perspective of seeing some of these similarities, yeah, I mean, you know, communication is, is similar across fields. You've got to understand your audience. You've got to understand what they are looking for, not necessarily what you want to get across, because it, that gets jumbled always in between the discussion. And we see that when we coach. You know, one athlete responds really well to a verbal instruction. Another athlete needs to be shown it. And, you know, from a visual perspective, another athlete, 
you may have to do it more kinesthetically by putting him in positions and making him feel it. So that happens in all environments. And I think that's the biggest difference between good coaches and great coaches is the ability to leverage communication to instill the technical expertise they're trying to get across or the tactical expertise that they're trying to get across. Uh, and that's you know, vital across all those fields. So you see the similarities there. Uh, but also the data-driven shift in how things are done. You know, the business world is very big in analytics, very big in using data to drive decision making. Uh, the coaching world has been a little bit behind, I would say, in the, especially the tennis environment over the last decade. It's starting to get a little bit better. The problem, unfortunately, in the tennis world is the analytics that people refer to is not true analytics. It's still opinion-based analytics. It's not using the data um, without bias. And that's unfortunately where a lot of people are getting into trouble. Mm. They're making decisions based on very small sample sizes on singular, say, matches or singular groupings of players and then extrapolating that over the entire you know, tennis playing community. And that's one of the first things you learn in basic statistics is be careful about correlations. That's not causation. And yeah. also be careful about extrapolating data outside of the population group that you collected that data in. And unfortunately, a lot of people are doing that too much and are making inferences that aren't correct. They may be correct for that one data set, but it may not be correct for uh, the field in general or juniors compared to seniors or, you know, males versus females or surfaces or countries or whatever it is. If the data wasn't collected in, in that specific data set that you want to use it in, you have to be very careful about extrapolating that information out. Coming from a scientist, that's solid advice. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of people out there definitely uh, quoting facts and figures, but sometimes yeah, we need to question them just a little bit further. Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, there is, I wouldn't say there's that much real true great research going on. There's a lot of, you know, people trying hard. They're looking at a certain situation. But, you know, a true researcher will say that if the information hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, it hasn't truly been vetted, yes. meaning that it hasn't been reviewed by um, experts in the field and it hasn't made it through certain levels of quality checking. And unfortunately, in the tennis world, very few studies are actually published in those uh, environments. Most of the time, they're published online and blog posts or through a media article or two, uh, and people take that and run with it. And sometimes the information's great, but many times it's limited. It's not that it's wrong, it's just maybe very limited. So looking forward to the bigger picture here, is there a way that we could encourage people to do research in a more scientific way? Is there a method you think we could do to help make the tennis industry make that shift? I mean, I get that you're doing that, but if so many other people aren't, is there something we could do to help? Yeah, I mean, it's it's challenging because the scientific process and the information and the way things are done are done in such a complicated way for most people that the information gets lost it doesn't get translated very well and that's been one of my biggest missions over the last probably seven eight years is been to how do we get 
complicated scientific information that's published written in a way that researchers understand but pretty much no one else in the world understands the isn't using... that the same across the whole world of science though it is it is <laughs> it's 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 the biggest problem where you the scientists are speaking to other scientists but outside of that very narrow world no one else understands what they're talking about so it's really a problem and one of the biggest things and you're seeing it more and more you know the infographic world is one way that a lot of people are trying to summarize complex studies in bite-sized information um, there's many different avenues now that people are trying to summarize it the problem with the summaries many times is there's an inherent bias in the person summarizing the data to tell a story that may or may not support a certain um, you know way of thinking or it's called confirmational bias many times where an individual has an outcome they want to show and they find a study or they find information that only supports that without showing the opposing view or data that may contradict that information. So it's really problematic many times because the summaries, which a lot of people do uh, look at, and that's the same thing with books. There's many great books that have been written by journalists that have taken some science but has mm. really left out a lot of the other information that contradicts their their um, goal or their stated objectives. So we've got, on the one hand, we've got the problem of people that don't particularly well, want to delve into deep science and are looking for simple solutions, which you know makes sense. It's something I've seen many times before. But then on the other hand, I was just wondering, throughout your time and your experiences, you've obviously dealt with many, many people and you've just mentioned actually a little bit earlier how important communication is. Is there something that you would give as advice to coaches as methods of communication with their players based on your extensive background? Yeah, most definitely. I think one of the biggest things is you have to get to the truth quickly with your players. And when I say the truth is many times players don't want to hear the truth, but for them to improve the quickest, you have to instill that early on. And a lot of the time you have to show that the information being provided in whatever way it's delivered is trying to result in a positive outcome. And mm. everything that's being performed is with the objective goal of getting a great outcome. And usually most players that are there want a positive outcome. They want to hit the ball better. They want to win more matches. They want to feel better on court, whatever it is. But that needs to be at the premise and as the stated mission of every coaching session. The goal today is to get a better outcome than when we started. And everything we do is going to be premised around that. So there may be some tough moments where you may provide some critical feedback, which is needed. Criticism's important. Constructive criticism is the best way for people to learn. But it has to be delivered in a way that the player understands that it's constructive and it has that stated goal of making him better. If it's just criticism for criticism's sake without the player understanding where it's coming from, why it's being delivered that way, then that's called negative coaching most of the time. People think of that as the coach is negative, the coach is always you know, critical of me, and that's the way the player responds to it. And that's on the coach. I mean, that's 100% on the coach. If a player feels that the coach is critical, they haven't set up the environment well enough 
And there's been players sometimes that I've worked with that think I've been too critical. Um, but you have to have that discussion. And fortunately, the ones that I know of anyway have communicated that to me. And I said, I'm, I'm being critical because there's a, there's a difference here between what you're doing and what you can be doing. And we're trying to narrow that gap as much as possible. And so you definitely want to be positive with a lot of things that you do on a, you know, it's about 80% positive, 20%, you know, constructive criticism is usually a good ratio. But if you're super positive on everything without that constructive criticism, then the athletes aren't going to improve quickly. I mean, it's, you see that in every good coach across all sports. You know, you have some that are a little bit more on the constructive side. You know, they're, they're always jabbing. They're always, you know, working on an area. And sometimes that can get overbearing for players. There's mm. no doubt about that. But every great coach has a component of that. And the coaches that are only positive, they're lacking many times the ability to get the player to take that last effective step. Um, and again, it depends on the audience as well. Most of my life has been in high performance um, yes. where the players are motivated. The players are coming to you because they're looking for that extra eggs. They're looking to really be the best they can possibly be. And that requires sacrifice. That requires a ability to understand that it's not always going to feel good. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to have to fight through frustration. Whereas if someone's just learning the game and they're being exposed to it, that's a completely different coaching style. That's much more positive, engaging. Mm. Everything's good because you want that person to have a positive feeling every moment pretty much while you're making progress. So it depends a lot on uh, what level we're coaching and what the stated objectives are of those coaching sessions or what the players' goals are. Yeah, so if you don't mind, I'm actually going to rephrase what you've just said into the way I like to coach it just to see if you agree with me. So I always say that it's important to understand what the problem is, but then to focus on the solution to the problem. So you, that, and I think that's kind of what you were saying when you say that you find the truth and then you try to move on from the truth. Would you agree with that? Or do you think yeah. I'm a little off the mark? No, no, hundred percent agree. I mean, solutions is what coaching is. I mean, if you actually broke coaching down into one word, or two words, it's finding solutions. That's what a coach's role is, is to look at a situation, technical, tactical, physical, mental, whatever area, and figure out, okay, where is the problem or the opportunity, depending on how you like to phrase it, mm. and then find a solution to that. And I think you, the way you said it's 100% correct, and I, I agree wholeheartedly. Oh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> Uh, a lot of the things that you do, you focus on a lot, biomechanics, the science, the mechanical, the physical. How do you feel that the mental can tie into this to assist the physical? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the biggest areas I focus on without focusing on it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No one comes to me because I'm a sports psychologist or I'm a mental skills expert. Uh, it's not how I, I train theoretically, um, but every day, probably 80% of the session is mental skill development, 
you know, you're pushing through barriers every day. You're creating um, unwinnable situations for your players to figure out how to fight through those. You're working on this balance between pushing and pulling, between trying to take them to a limit they've never reached before and having them fail multiple times. And in the strength and conditioning world, that's one of the biggest things you do. You take your athletes to a limit. They fail today. And then some athletes look at that as failure. Other athletes look at that. I'm one step closer to achieving that goal next time. And that's all, you know, psychological. That's all emotional um, aspects of it. So every single day, what we do is, you know, creating an environment where athletes, you know, are looking at those challenges as a positive and you know I work in soccer and baseball and some other sports and uh, martial arts as well and uh, you just see some of these athletes that have been trained whether it's formally or informally usually from the parents more than coaches and some of them are built a certain way and respond to those situations exactly how you would write it up in a textbook if you wanted to make a phenomenal competitor and then you've got other athletes that respond to that exact same situation in in a negative way. They're looking at it as failure. They're thinking their self-worth is based on that one performance rather than this is all a journey that you're trying to just day-to-day find improvement. And also typically most players that feel like their coaches are too critical most of the time, not all the time because sometimes there are coaches that are too critical, but most of the time, the, the player is is not completely happy with themselves in some form or fashion and that they see that criticism not as helping them but as a negative um, aspect. So you always have to work through that. And even though the coach may be doing a great job and doing it as best as he or she can, the player is not responding to it because of some you know, aspects of their lifestyle, their upbringing, their background that the coach just isn't getting through to them. And we see that all the time. I mean, the amount of coaching changes you see in tennis at the professional level is really sad to me. It's really, it's really a shame. It's a shame for the players and it's a shame for the coaches because the coaches can't commit to a longer term plan because they know they're on a short term basic contract, basic timeline. They need to win today. They need to make the player feel good most of the time. Um, and the players get hurt because from every time they change coaches, it's there's a learning curve there that can take three to six months. And many times the players don't allow that time frame to happen. And it's one of those biggest challenges I see with the professional game at the moment. And arguably why you see some of these ups and downs in players' careers result-wise that there's just a lot of chopping and changing and not sticking with a plan. Even if the plan's not perfect, a structured plan that is consistent, that is reliable, that the player knows and the coach knows the purpose is going to usually provide better results than chopping and changing every few months. Why do you think that is? Who? What mindset is to blame for this chopping and changing of coaches and players? It's a, it's a really great question. I think a lot of the time when players feel uncomfortable, they lose a, 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 a match or two or three, three, three or four in a few months. They're, you know, it's, it's ego. Um, you try to you know, deflect from yourself. Everyone does it. It's part of you know, human nature. 
um, you don't always want to blame yourself. You want to blame an external entity. And the good and bad part about tennis is the player on court is 100% in control of their environment when they're playing matches. And if they're blaming their coaches or they're blaming their outside support system, uh, that's a challenge um, because, you know, they may have impact. They may create an environment that's not positive or something like that. And that's a lot of the time what you see. But it's it's just a shame that you're seeing so much change that goes on because you know there's a lot of great coaches out there that I know that really aren't coaching much meaning that they're not developing the players anymore they're managing the emotions they're managing the team around the player whether it's family or other factors agents and they're just trying to keep the environment as positive as possible just to make the player feel good which by itself isn't enough. I mean, you have to develop, you have to make the player better. You have to work on strategy. You have to train hard. You have to do all those things that make great players great. And it's one of those things. If you look at, you know, the coaching, say on the players that do have a relatively more consistent environment, uh, they usually do better, and the argument could be, well, they're doing better, so they don't want to change. That's mm-hmm. a possible argument as well, yeah. and there's some truth to that. You don't want to keep doing the same thing if it's not working, but you know, a three-month time period to me doesn't seem long enough um, to to make decisions. Sometimes it's even shorter than that, and you know, that comes down to vetting of coaches as well. And I don't think tennis does a very good job at all at the higher levels of matching coaches with players, meaning that there's no real personality profiles that go into it ahead of time. There's no real um, you know, communication style scenarios. There's no real way that most of these matchups actually happen in a smart way. It's normally someone knows someone, someone's worked with someone in the past, and you know they put them together and they see how it goes um there should be more work done on the front end it's just like when an executive gets hired at a company the executive goes through a lot of steps to get that job they go through leadership profiles they go through background checks they go through you know corporate culture assessments they go through all these things to try to figure out is this person going to be a good fit in this environment and I really don't see that happening uh, in the coaching world from a tennis standpoint at all. But it's difficult because coaching, um, tennis is such an individual sport. We're a whole load of individuals running around in the same industry. There's no sort of team perspective. You don't, I mean, I get that each player has their team around them, but there isn't really a body that says, oh, we're going to vet the coaches. We're going to see who's got what qualifications and who might be a good fit. So it is going to fall back on the good old sort of, I know this guy who's free at the moment and he might be good for you. Do you want to give him a call? Like it's more likely to be informal because that's the nature of the sport, even though it's such a high profile sport. No, I, I agree with you. That's exactly what's happening today, but doesn't mean it's the best way to do it. And that's always usually one of my first or second questions to coaches, to people. I'm like, I know you do that currently. Ask yourself, is the best, is that the best way or is that going to provide the best outcome? Mm. And the, the simple answer is no. I mean, we can just see it in the, in the facts and how much chopping and changing is happening. But that's also where the agents play a big role in this. 
um, even more so than the players many times. The agents are usually the gatekeepers to these decisions. And they, they have the ability to go through this process. I mean, they can help instigate this process because it's better for them and their outcome. They want to help the players. The agents out there, their goal is to, you know, make the player feel as good as possible, perform as well as possible, because that impacts their bottom line at the end of the day. So they've got the right motive. Um, the challenge is, do they have the right background or experience to know how to match these people up, maybe a little bit more effectively? Well, that's really interesting because I actually didn't know a lot about how that works. So thank you for explaining all of that. Um, perhaps we need like to be on the said, lookout every, for solutions. <laughs> yeah, like you said, it's all solution-based and every situation is different. Sometimes it comes through the parent. Sometimes the player puts a list of names together. Um, but normally it's not the player reaching out. There's someone on the player's team that's making that connection and making that dis- decision. Sometimes it's the federation um, so, you know, there's a lot of folks involved always in some of those decisions, but in general, from what I've seen, and there may be some scenarios that do it really well, but in general, it's like you said, it's like, hey, I've worked with this person before, they may be a good fit, why don't you do a trial week and see what happens. Mm. So just to change gears a little bit, you've worked with people from all around the planet. Have you noticed any striking differences of working with players of different nationalities? Yeah, so it's a really, really interesting question. I would say 15 years ago, it was very clear. You had certain certain stereotypes based on countries. Um, Eastern Europe had a certain environment. You know, uh, English, French players would, would had a certain environment. U.S. players had a certain environment. Asian players had a certain environment. South Americans, you know, Spanish players. So you did have these stereotypes that I think were more consistent. Um, the internet changed that a lot. Um, you know, people saw how other people were doing things. They started getting biased to other methods or other training techniques or other ways people would do things. And you're starting to see a lot more um, homogeneous you know, personalities now and training styles and things like that that you didn't see 20 years ago. It was, it used to be, you know, Australian players used to train a certain way and they looked a certain way when they played matches in general. Um, you know, South Americans had a certain way of doing things. American players had a certain theme or more of a stereotype. You always had your outliers, but if you took 100 players, you would see 60 to 80% of them kind of look similar, train similar, things like that. Uh, so you're not seeing that as much, partly because there's more coaches now that are crossing over countries as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be fewer Spanish-speaking coach. You'd pretty much only work with a Spanish-speaking player from a certain environment. Um, now you see a lot of these coaches crossing over. People are trying to get good information from different sources. They're trying to piece all these together. So you don't see as much of those stereotypes from country to country as you used to. Do you think Um, that this has affected the evolution of the game at all? I think 100%. I think you start seeing it used to be clay quarters had a certain style and they trained a certain way and they were really good on clay and not as good on other surfaces you don't have too many pure clay quarters anymore. Nearly every clay quarter can play really well on hard court. 
most hardcorders can play pretty well on clay as well now. Um, so you don't have as much of those um, specific, you know, players. Part of the reason is the court surfaces have become a bit more neutralized and that has been done on purpose to try to have those stars be competitive at every event and go deep in every event, which I don't know, you can make an argument for or against that. I know a lot of people would like to see a little bit more difference in court surfaces to show, you know, the different styles a little yeah, bit more. I try to so. bring That'd back nice. serve and volleying, try to bring back really, really slow courts, um, try to bring back, you know, a really, really fast indoor court and just to sort of see how these players adapt a little bit more. But, um, you know, there's some negatives to that as well. I mean, you're going to see some results there that, some of those top seeds may get knocked out early in tournaments, which isn't great for most of the tournaments because we know the top seeds are usually the ones that pay the bills for most of these tournaments. Yes, and it's unfortunate sometimes when things like that are a driver for how to run an event because it, you lose a little bit of the purity of the sport. Yeah, no, it's it's different. I mean, it's at the highest levels. I mean, it's a big, big business and the decisions are made um, nearly always with a financial outcome in mind, which isn't very common in all the sports I deal with baseball and football and soccer. I mean, it's, it's not a tennis issue. It's, it's every sport issue, which is okay. Um, If they're making the decisions with the right data and it's, not easy to see that they are many times. Many times they're not always making those decisions with with high quality data. All right, so just a couple more questions for you. For someone like me, uh, who loves coaching and loves the science behind coaching, which one of your books do you recommend I read first? Yeah, so th- there there's a handful, and they're a little bit they're all a little bit different. Um, I think if you really want to get into sort of the anatomy and getting to the muscles of the body, Tennis Anatomy is well, probably the best book from a visual standpoint. We worked with a great um, designer and illustrator who, based on these photos we took, turned them into uh, images that highlight every muscle of the body. And it goes through all the strokes. It goes through all the tennis movements and it provides dozens of exercises that you can do to improve uh, your body to play better tennis. So if you like really good visuals and you want to get into sort of understanding the body better, that's a great resource. And it's oh, people love that book because the, the illustrations, it's all color. It's really, really neat. And we were fortunate to work with a great illustrator for, for that project. Uh, Complete Conditioning for Tennis is um, in its third edition now. I've worked with uh, Dr. Paul Rodert and Todd Allenbecker on that over the last couple editions. And that one is really uh, a good introductory book for how to set up training programs for tennis players. It's more aimed at the recreational competitive player. It's not really taking it to the highest levels, but it's more for the masses and it's how to get started in taking care of your body, putting together training programs, things like that. Well, that's great. I need that because I do that for my players, but I'm just doing it based off experience and I would like to make sure that I'm doing it the right way. So I need those books in my library. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And then if you're looking to get more in depth, the uh, educational courses through the International Tennis Performance Association really go into good detail. Um, and that's where if you're really working with players and you want to be able to periodize your programs, put together different training programs, make sure you know how to test effectively and train and then retest and do it in a st strategic way. Uh, the International Tennis Performance Association uh, curriculums are really where you go into a lot of depth from that standpoint. Well, that's on my list of things to do. <laughs> the WTCA conference is coming up in a couple of weeks and we're going to see you there, aren't we? I am. I'm always excited to be involved. Um, I've known you know, all the leadership from the WTCA for de literally decades. And uh, so anything I can do to support good education, bringing together quality folks in the tennis industry. Uh, it's it's a fun event. I'll be doing uh, a talk actually on the forehand and we'll be focusing on some of the science behind the forehand from a technical standpoint and then also you know, really understanding how do we leverage power from different parts of the body and you know, it's not about what's the right or wrong swing, it's more about how does your physical body impact your technical proficiency and understanding some of those links wow well i'm looking forward to that <laughs> i need that that's uh that's just again the stuff that, that i think a lot of people miss out on we talk about how to learn the forehand with the basics and and these kinds of things that you're mentioning the physical limitations a lot of people don't know and don't understand so that's going to be really good yeah no it's just an awareness for a lot of coaches that have learned they you know most coaches learn you know good coaches let me rephrase that teach the forehand somewhat similar with a few little adjustments here or there but we know that you know about a foot before contact and a foot after contact is the forehand everything else is style and too many people really focus on style and unfortunately if you focus on style without understanding the fundamentals in that really important period you would never have a Nadal forehand. You would never have a Naomi Osaka forehand. You, you would never have some of these techniques that a lot of people would say, well, that's not textbook or that doesn't look right or that doesn't look like the previous generation. But if you actually break those forehands down, they look totally fine from a fundamental standpoint. They just have a unique style to them. And that style has allowed that person based on their body, based on what they can and can't do to produce a shot that historically had never been seen before. Excellent. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. That's going to be great. Well, you know, I really appreciate your time on the phone today. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem at all. Always enjoy talking about this stuff. And thanks for the great questions as well. Well, I do my best. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Mark Kovacs, and I will get the pleasure of seeing him speak next weekend at the WTCA conference in New York. We're going to be filming some live filmed podcasts while we're there, so make sure you follow WTCA Tennis on Instagram and the Tennis Connection podcast for all the latest updates. Have a great week. See you in New York.